Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. All right. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you're an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education to listen to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for more information. My name is Mike Kallenberger, clinical pharmacist in PGY-1 RPD at North Kansas City Hospital. And our guest today is Norm Finn, clinical assistant professor at Manchester University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences and pediatric clinical pharmacist at Parkview Women's and Children's Hospital. In this episode, we'll be discussing the vaccine preventable disease, rabies. Welcome, everyone. Norm, why don't you set the stage for us by providing a patient case? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go ahead and talk about XE, who is an eight-year-old male, weighs 26 kilograms, and he presents to his local emergency department via ambulance for the management of a dog bite. He was playing in front of his front yard in the afternoon when he saw a big dog walking down the street. His father was outside mowing the lawn in the backyard, and his mother was inside the house with his five-year-old sibling. XE stated when he was interviewed that he stood up and the dog charged at him quickly. He then shouted for his mom and ran to the front door to get inside, but the dog was unfortunately quicker and ended up biting him on the leg before he could make it. His mother came out of the house and fortunately got the dog off of XE and chased the dog off. They then called 911, who sent an ambulance to the home and notified animal control of a loose dog in the neighborhood. On admission, XE's uh, past medical history is largely non-significant. He was hospitalized at four years of age for severe influenza pneumonia, but is otherwise healthy. He's born vaginally with no reported complications. He lives at home with his parents and younger brother. He's fully vaccinated, including the influenza and COVID series. He currently is in grade three, and he states his favorite subject is math. XE's physical exam is notable for an extremity injury to his right lower leg with broken skin, bruising, and teeth marks. The wound is clotted sufficiently. No active bleeding is noted. His face's pain scale is a 7 out of 10. Vital signs are significant for a heart rate of 112 beats per minute. Blood pressure of 116 over 82 millimeters of mercury, respiratory rate of 24 breaths per minute, and the ED decides to initiate empiric zosin at 100 milligrams per kilogram per dose intravenously every eight hours over 30 minutes and admits him to the general pediatric floor. Surgery is also consulted to assess the wound. Thanks for the detailed case. Parents' initial thoughts aren't usually on rabies in these scenarios. Obviously, it's a lot going on. Can you tell me a little bit more about rabies virus and why it should be on our minds? Sure. The rabies virus itself is a single-strand RNA virus belonging to the Rhabdoviridae family. The rabies genome itself encodes five proteins, a nucleoprotein, phosphoprotein, matrix protein, glycoprotein, and polymerase. So how these proteins in the genome are ultimately arranged determines the overall structure of the virus. Transmission of rabies itself is, occurs through an infected animal's saliva or neural tissue and an individual's mucous membranes or blood. There are multiple types of rabies virus out in the wild, with the canine rabies virus variant, or CRVV, being the most common version. There are also wildlife rabies virus variants that are associated with specific animals such as bats, raccoons, skunks, and foxes. Once absorbed to the host cell membrane, likely through the G protein, the virus enters the cytoplasm of the host cell. From there, it begins to coalesce and fuse to endosomal membranes within the cell. Since the rabies virus is an RNA strand virus, it requires messenger RNA to undergo replication. It undergoes transcription via viral encoded polymerase and translation of the five proteins on free ribosomes. 
though the final steps occur in the endoplasmic reticulum and Golgi apparatus. Once the cellular switch is activated, viral replication begins. Notably, during the replication process, the typical stop codons are ignored, leading to non-stop transcription. The full-length copies of the viral genome then become templates for the full-length copies of the synthesized negative strands. Once constructed, the finalized RNPM complex then binds with a glycoprotein at the plasma membrane and initiates budding. Typically, this viral budding occurs in the CNS from plasma membranes, while viral budding in the salivary glands occurs from the acinar lumen. From there, the cycle repeats through any penetrative exposure to saliva or brain matter. Of note, the virus itself is not really that resilient. It can be inactivated rather quickly through simple actions like drying or cleaning, as well as UV light, x-rays, and ether. Interesting, I appreciate all those details. What can you tell us about the prevalence of rabies? So there are multiple rabies strains documented in the world. And as mentioned, there are five predominant strains in the US, most, most of which are geographically identified. The five strains are the raccoon strain, seen often in the eastern states, skunk strain one, which is typically seen in the northern Midwest and California, skunk strain two, which is seen in Nebraska, Missouri, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Texas, and then the Arctic and red fox strain in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Alaska, and then finally the gray fox coyote dog strain. Globally, there are about 59,000 cases of reported rabies death in humans annually, with better than 98% caused by that canine rabies virus variant. Most of the reported cases are in Africa and Asia, lower socioeconomic countries that have limited access to adequate health care. Thankfully, the epidemiology of human exposure to rabies in the United States is exceptionally rare. The most recent U.S. epidemiologic data is from 2018, which described about 5,000 reported rabid wildlife animals. This number tends to be about the same each year and fluctuates by less than 5% annually. The most prevalent states that report these cases of rabies include Texas, Virginia, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Colorado, and New York. Thankfully, however, domesticated animal rabies incidents is uncommon thanks to prevalent veterinary vaccination rates. Available data, again from the CDC, describe around 60 to 70 cases of rabid dogs and upwards of 250 cats annually within the U.S. However, human rabies cases are limited to only one or two per year. Between the years 2000 to 2020, there were 52 reported human rabies cases, with 38 of those resulting from exposure in the U.S. None of these individuals had been prophylactically treated with the rabies vaccine. The risk of contracting rabies is also thankfully rare, though any mammal can actually contract the disease. Most of the risk of being exposed to rabies is through wild animals that includes bats, raccoons, and foxes, with bats being far and away the most common animal identified. Dogs and cats can also be possible carriers or vectors. However, most domestic animals receive the rabies vaccine through routine veterinary appointment. Rarely, rabies transmission has occurred via organ transplantation. There are case reports from the last 20 years that describe and confirmed a handful of rabies cases in organ transplant patients from their organ donor. A separate case report described from an individual in China whose organ donor passed away from rabies as he didn't seek out treatment. However, the organ recipient did get prophylactic treatment and survived. That last case makes a great transition point. It's intriguing how one person died and the immunocompromised patient survives. How does rabies typically present? What should we be looking for in these patients? Great question. Early on during the prodromal phase, patients may experience some nonspecific symptoms that mirror the common cold or flu. Things like fever, malaise, headache, pharyngitis, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and more. 
These usually present within the first seven to 10 days of exposure and can be unintentionally or anecdotally dismissed by patients and providers alike. The only warning sign we might observe is paresthesia, pain, or intense itching at the site of the bite. These are seen in about 30% of canine-associated rabies and upwards of 70% of bat-associated rabies cases. If this is missed, the window for treatment shrinks considerably. From there, there's an acute neurological period where patients can experience symptoms such as paralysis, priapism, and focal or generalized convulsions. There are two types of presentations at this point. There's furious rabies and paralytic rabies, which may also be referred to as dumb rabies or apathetic rabies. Patients with furious rabies will experience a myriad of aggressive symptoms, including delirium, agitation, restlessness, confusion, biting, thrashing, and more. The stage itself can last for several days where these occurrences will manifest. Then we'll transition to more periodic outbursts that will typically last for five minutes or less with more lucid, docile, and communicative periods. Eventually, patients may develop seizures or cardiac arrest. Paralytic rabies, on the other hand, skips the furious stage and goes directly to the paralysis stage, as the name implies. Individuals who present with an acute encephalitis should have rabies evaluated as part of the differential, though it should be lowered compared to more commonly seen and suspected encephalopathic causes. Other more commonly seen etiologies of encephalitis, such as herpes, enterovirus, or arbovirus, should be ruled out quickly if possible. Clinical symptoms can include autonomic instability, dysphagia, paresis, and or paresthesias. Probably one of the most telltale signs of rabies is hydrophobia. Patients will have an irrational fear of water that is quite impressive in terms of both intensity and reactivity. A simple cup of water can really set these patients off. If improvement or no change in neurologic status is noted, or if the patient has exhibited symptoms for multiple weeks, rabies is a less likely diagnosis. A comprehensive patient history and exam should be conducted. Evidence of bite marks on any part of the body or a reported animal bite should move rabies up the differential list. Contacting the public health department should be initiated to get direction on any particular measurements that are needed or where to send the results if they are needed. Some of the workup that can be performed during the assessment include a skin biopsy of the neck, looking specifically at the cutaneous nerves. Negri bodies are found in the nucleocapsid material and can be seen in the cytoplasm of infected neurons. Viral cultures may be performed, but results are not readily returned in time to affirm the diagnosis. And just as an informational point, rabies PCR assays are typically close to 100% specific. What is probably most difficult with diagnosing rabies is that it has a long incubation period between 90, 20 to 90 days, with most cases ultimately presenting within a year of contracting the disease. Rarely, incubation periods have been reported as long as six to eight years, with one incubation case being described in the literature lasting up to 25 years. Part of what determines the incubation period is the type of injury and the subsequent transmission. Someone who is bitten multiple times with deep wounds or is bitten in the head or neck area, their incubation period is expected to be much less than someone who was scratched or briefly exposed accidentally or unintentionally. This is the most important window for post-exposure prophylaxis because it's the only real time we have to adequately treat the disease. Once symptoms begin to manifest, it's essentially fatal at that, at that point. Thanks, Norm. Never realized that the incubation period could be that long. So what are the best treatment practices for rabies? Is there a specific time frame that practitioners must meet to ensure survival of the patient? Definitely. Regardless of rabies suspicion, initial intervention for an individual who presents with an animal bite should involve irrigation and debridement of the affected areas if able. Once completed, 
broad spectrum antimicrobial agents that cover both aerobic and anaerobic bacteria, such as amoxicillin clavulanate, may be considered in individuals who are immunocompromised or have moderate to severe injuries of the hands, face, or more penetrative injuries to the bones and or joints for a duration of three to five days, according to the 2014 IDSA guidelines. The most important and appropriate management of an individual who has come into contact with rabies itself involves administration of a four or five dose vaccine series, which is given over two to four weeks, as well as rabies immunoglobulin infusion. Both the vaccine and immunoglobulin need to be administered during the rabies incubation period to be effective. Rabies immunoglobulin should be administered on day zero, aka the day of the attack or bite, as soon as possible after that exposure. Dosing is 20 international units per kilogram as a single dose for all ages. There's no maximum dose, and this should be injected intramuscularly around and under the bite wound as much as possible as an infiltrate. It should not be administered intravenously. If there's any remaining volume afterwards, it can be administered into a large muscle such as the anterolateral thigh or deltoid. The gluteus maximus used to be the preferred alternative injection site, but it should be avoided unless it's part of the infected area because of the side effects of sciatic nerve damage and unpredictable absorbance. The immunoglobulin can be given up to seven days post-rabies vaccine administration. It is assumed that after day seven of vaccine administration, antibody development for rabies has occurred and will elicit an immune response. There are two types of rabies immunoglobulin. There's hyperrab and kedrab. There is also a hyperrab S/D that is both less potent and less concentrated compared to the standard hyperrab product. All immunoglobulin products are stored in the refrigerator. Hyperrab can be stored at room temperature for up to six months, while kedrab can be stored at room temperature for up to one month. No contraindications are listed for these medications, as it's important to observe these patients for possible allergic reactions, as well as hemolysis and thrombosis. Live vaccines should not be given within three to four months of administration of the rabies immunoglobulin. And then the most common adverse effects that we typically see with this product or these products include injection site reactions, such as redness and pain, as well as headaches and myalgias. The rabies vaccine, on the other hand, is an inactivated vaccine that's administered as a series of four doses at days zero, three, seven, and 14, with each dose consisting of a one mil volume. If a patient is classified as immunocompromised, then they should receive a fifth rabies vaccine dose on day 28. If a patient has been previously vaccinated against rabies, then they can get a two-dose post-exposure series on days zero and three. All vaccines should be administered intramuscularly in a large muscle group that was described, such as the anterolateral thigh or the deltoid muscle, and it should also be injected away from the injury location if possible. There are two, also two brands of rabies vaccine. There's the Imavax rabies and Ravivert. Imavax is a human diploid saddle vaccine, while the Ravivert vaccine is developed using purified chick embryo cells. With all those details, I think it'd be good to go talk a little bit about the pre-exposure versus post-exposure rabies vaccine series and how they're different. What should we be watching out for, or at least cautioning our patients and parents about the vaccine? Sure thing. So as I mentioned previously, the post-exposure rabies vaccine series is either a four or five dose series over a period of 14 to 28 days with that consideration given, that fifth dose can given for immunocompromised patients. The pre-exposure prophylactic rabies vaccine series is a two or three dose series given over a period of seven to 28 days that is administered to high-risk individuals who have a greater than average chance of exposure. The typical pre-exposure series 
is given on either days zero and seven, and then either 21 or 28, depending on the series. A summary of the available evidence demonstrated comparable immunogenicity between the two-dose and three-dose regimen. Thus, the two-dose regimen is the one most commonly employed. Most individuals who are candidates for the pre-exposure vaccine series either work with animals directly, such as veterinarians and animal handlers, or they're rabies researchers who directly handle the virus. Individuals who are likely to spend time in a country where, where rabies is endemic may also wish to get the pre-exposure vaccine series as a preventative measure. The current ACIP guidelines provide a risk category to classify individuals based on factors such as possible exposure and long-term immunogenicity. The risk categories range from one to five, with one being the highest risk and five being the lowest risk. What is generally viewed as the minimum serum concentration to achieve complete neutralization of the rabies virus is between 0.1 to 0.3 international units per mil. Though most studies have described a higher acceptable titer level exceeding 0.5 international units per mil, which is supported by the ACIP guidelines. Depending on which category a person falls into, follow-up antibody titers should be checked as often as every six months for those who are risk category one and every two years for those who are risk category two. A booster dose should be given if the individual does not have an acceptable titer. It's assumed that primary immunogenicity will peak around two to four weeks after completion of the series. The two-dose series has shown to be adequately protective for at least three years, which is why only those who are risk category one or risk category two warrant additional testing. Syncope has been reported in adolescents and young adults who get these vaccines, so it's important to ensure patients are seated or lying down when receiving the vaccine to avoid that syncope-related injury. Other adverse events that may be observed include traditional injection site reactions, including pain, rash, erythema, and irritation, as well as hematomas, headache, abdominal pain, and general malaise. There's also a very small but possible risk of developing Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease or Guillain-Barre syndrome. If patients are immuno on immunosuppressant medications, these should be held if possible during the period of post-exposure therapy. If evaluating immunocompromised patients for pre-exposure prophylaxis, rabies vaccine administration should be delayed until the condition is resolved, if possible. If it's not possible, titers should be checked at least one week and ideally two to four weeks after the series has been delivered. One of the biggest concerns with the vaccine series is actually adherence. Patients who present to the ED with an animal bite and are treated appropriately still need to return to the facility for an additional three or four doses, depending on their condition, over the following two to four weeks. There's a significant chance that patients could be delayed in their series for various reasons or even lost to follow-up and not complete their vaccine series. And this obviously is discussing the post-exposure series. It's vitally important that patients are adequately educated on the need to adhere to the regimen and the risks of failing to do so. With the concerns for adherence, should we always treat any animal bite or exposure as rabies risk? Or can we forego exposing patients to the typical interventions given the risk of contracting rabies from other animals, like dogs, for example, as well? Great question. I've actually encountered this in practice and it merited a lot of discussion between several providers. There are several factors that should be considered when evaluating a patient for an animal bite, including the type of animal, if the animal is known or unknown to the patient, if the animal is domestic or wild, all sorts of topics like these. Domestic animal vaccination rates are very high in the US and animals are known that are known and current on their rabies vaccines are unlikely to contact or transfer the rabies virus. As a result, fewer than 10% of reported rabies cases in the US occur in domestic animals, 
And most of these are reported in a handful of states. So it's usually a little bit more concentrated. For instance, in 2018, Texas had the highest reported number of rabbit dogs with 15 cases. In the state of Indiana, which is where I practice, there were 13 confirmed rabies cases in that same year, all of which were bats. In fact, the last reported case of rabies in Indiana in either a dog, a domesticated dog or cat was 1989 and 1984 respectively. So it does actually raise a fair question. Considering each dose of the vaccine costs between $500 to $600 wholesale price, meaning a four-dose series would be about $2,000-$2,500, and the immunoglobulin is between $800 to $900 wholesale price per mil, it could be a costly investiture. However, since the alternative is an untreatable fatal disease, not prophylactically treating a, pa a patient for rabies, in my opinion, is a low-odds outcome with a very high-risk decision. Each state's Department of Health has specific instructions and guidance. Some actually have really nice algorithms that are easy to follow in case you have any questions as to whether or not a patient with an animal bite should be treated for rabies. Thanks, Norm. So how do things turn out with our patient in the end? Well, surgery comes to see our kid, XE, and they clean out his wound. They determine that it doesn't require further surgical intervention to close the wound, and they sign off. The Department of Health is notified of the animal attack, and animal control was able to catch and test the dog for rabies. The next day, the rabies test turns negative, or returns negative, and XE does not need to be treated for rabies with post-exposure prophylaxis. The bite area looks very good with minimal redness and swelling, and overall healing well. His antibiotic regimen is discontinued, and he is discharged with acetaminophen and ibuprofen as needed for pain management. That's great. Is there anything else you want to add to our conversation? There is. I did have one other thing I wanted to mention, which is World Rabies Day is September 28th every year. It's a collaborative global effort that includes the WHO, the CDC, the World Organization for Animal Health, and Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. It was first observed in 2007, and it's intended to increase awareness of rabies and work to improve and expand measures to avoid unnecessary harm and death from this preventative disease. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thanks, Norm, for a great topic and great discussion. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education for listening to this episode by visiting elearning.ashp.org podcast. Please note that continuing education credit expires two years after the date of this episode is published. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP.